Triathlon Show, episode 53. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. As always, I'm your host, Michael, and once again, I've let an interview run long, so we're going to go right to the meat and potatoes of today's episode, my interview with David Tilbury Davis, who is the coach of, among others, professional triathletes Cody Beals and Lionel Sanders. We had a great, great discussion. I had so many takeaways from this and so many interesting things that I started thinking about after talking to David, including, for example, the thing that David mentions about how using paddles in swimming is not necessarily a good thing for triathletes and uh, the cognitive load and how that needs to be taken into account when training for three different sports. So those are just some of my nuggets, but uh, you will have yours and that we talk about both things applicable for beginners as well as very advanced triathletes. So there's something for everybody here and with a particular view to self-coaching as well. I'll be right back after the interview to talk a little bit about a new paper by Steven Seiler that uh, me and David discussed briefly in the interview. But uh, that's after hearing from David Tilbury Davis. All right, on today's interview on That Triathlon Show, I am with David Tilbury Davis. David, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning for you and uh, good evening for me. I'm in in Finland and and you are way beyond the Atlantic in uh, Seattle, is that correct? Yes, currently in Seattle. Yeah, okay. And uh, can can you just give the listeners a brief background of uh, of yourself as as a coach? Absolutely. I've been uh, coaching triathlon for about 20 years now and uh, 2008 really made it a a full-time gig for myself, so to speak. I spent about four or five years based in Spain and then more recently have been based in the US and a couple of years in Texas and then have just moved up to the Pacific Northwest. Perfect. And who are some of the athletes that you coach? I think there are at least a couple of names that uh, many of the listeners will be familiar with. Yeah, I've been working with a mixture of uh, professional and uh, age group athletes uh, all over the world uh, for, the, for, for many years. And um, currently, my athletes are predominantly in North America and Canada. I also have an athlete in Iceland at the moment, though. Um, in terms of some of those athletes, uh, I, I work with Cody Beals, Lionel Sanders, uh, Jim Lubinsky, Leslie Smith, Sue Hughes, um, to name some of the, the professional athletes and, uh, and a mixture of age group athletes that um, are racing at a variety of different world championship races. Yeah, and uh, we'll link to your website as well. And uh, you have uh, taken both the pros and, and the age groupers to to great success in, in their various competitions like world championships and, and other other great achievements. So uh, so that will all be linked up in the in the show notes. Now, you are 
known, at least uh, from an outside perspective, my impression is that you take a a scientific approach to training and and you like looking at at numbers of course that's not the only thing that you do but that but that's one of the things that uh that has uh that you ha- have made a name for yourself with so how does that translate to planning the training of your athletes and how do you use that more generally i, I think it's an interesting point um you wouldn't you wouldn't be the first person to say that you know, i'm sort of perceived as a as a uh, a quantitative coach um I think if you spoke to my athletes, they would probably argue quite differently. Um, but but it part of it does go back to my my background in business and um, and I and I really take a point of view that in a simplistic way, if you if you're not measuring, you're not managing. Um, as a as a cliched phrase, now you know the the depth and detail as to which you measure is dependent on really what sort of outcome you're hoping for. I mean, the reality is, and I won't disagree with anybody in saying that, you know, the true test of um, whether you're doing things right or wrong is a race. Um, But the whole point of collecting data along the way is to, you know, is to really understand why or why not you're progressing. and, And thereby you could learn as a coach and you can learn as an athlete so um you know whether it's something as simplistic as a perception of effort that you keep a record of from a training session or whether it's some you know highly technologically advanced running power meter that attaches to your shoes and you're looking at vertical oscillation then you know they're both just ways of measuring and having information that allows you to then ask better questions yeah, and uh, can you go into a bit more specifics here on on how you measure and uh, what the timelines are? Do you have like periodic tests, or do you do you look for certain developments on certain things that you that you follow, like those RPEs from key sessions, or or how do you do that? It depends on the athlete. In most instances, we'll sit down at the beginning of the year and we'll look back at the previous year and look at what went well and what could have gone better. And then we'll look at what are the goals moving forwards for the next six to 12 months. And then within that, lay out very clear benchmarks of, okay, well, you know, if we're trying to win a world championship, then, you know, we know based on experience that you're going to have to be able to run typically this run split. You're going to be, have to be able to bike at this kind of power output and, um, you know, have a, a really good uh, drag number. So, you know, we need to work on perhaps position or equipment choices. Um, and then from there, we say, okay, well, that's where we need to get to. Where are we now? And then, you know, fill in the blanks and say, okay, well, we need some benchmarks along the way of progression. Um, are those sequential? Are those tied into certain events and races? Um, and then, uh, whilst I'd also potentially use some sort of fixed test, like a 20-minute test on the bike or a four-minute test on the bike for professional road races or uh, a combination of different things or 400 and 200 in the pool and calculating um, critical pace or critical power, those kinds of concepts. Um, there's also the reality of uh, with three sports, you – you know, if you're constantly testing, it can get very cognitively demanding for an athlete. You know, if you're doing 
a swim, a bike, and a run test, and you're doing that, you know, every every six to eight weeks, you know, that's um, that's a lot of testing. And the reality is, is is that training is testing, and testing is training. So my experience is such that there's certain training sessions an athlete will do that I will expect a certain response. And if they're definitely progressing, then, you know, the response is X plus Y. And, you know, if it's not what we're expecting, it's X minus Y. So there's a, co- so there's a combination there. I'm not as black and white as, you know, we must do a 20-minute test every six weeks to validate um, your progression in fitness because the reality is, is you can write a training program that can make somebody absolutely phenomenally brilliant at 20 minute tests. And, and you could rightly argue that that's a really good reflection of their aerobic fitness. But if they're training for an Ironman and the longest bike ride they ever do is 90 minutes, then I think you're setting that athlete up for failure. So I think you, you know, there's some common sense in there in terms of specificity towards a race or a, or a race environment, um, or uh, the the outcome such as you know a a certain run split or a certain power output Mm, okay so so you have depending on the athletes let's say limitations uh, or the goals that they need to hit and for their specific goal race you you have those key sessions that for example for an an ironman athlete and uh, where the bike is the key issue maybe for that particular athlete you would look at their performance and progression in a in a training session like like a bike workout with uh, with really with several long intervals, like twenty minute intervals, and and a whole whole heap of those, or, or something like that. There'd definitely be a place for that, um, but it, it, it's even broader. I can give you a good example. Um, I worked with one athlete who actually lives in Espo near you. All right, um, and he raced uh, Ironman Malaysia um, last year, and. Um, was looking to qualify for Kona again and, you know, training in September, October, and uh, November in, in Finland, I'm sure, you know, is, has its challenges. Um, and so we had a very large focus on, on heat acclimation and carefully monitoring the, the sort of interplay between, you know, his power output, which we knew, you know, he could put out a lot of power, but actually his, you know, his, the, the relationship between that and sort of cardiovascularly what was going on um, a, as a measure of sort of heat tolerance and using certain, um, you know, heat acclimation protocols to get him ready for the race. Okay, yeah, that's a good example. Really interesting. So that's, uh, and that's something that I think any age group athlete can do is is sit down um, and and very simplistically, you know, take a, you know, a strength, uh, a SWOT analysis and say, okay, well, you know, what are my physiological physiological strengths and what are my physiological weaknesses, you know, based on my sporting background? And and how does that relate to my goals? You know, I want to do a sprint distance triathlon. I want to do an Olympic distance triathlon. Um, what opportunities do I have to train? Am I, you know, do I have a good opportunity to get a really long day of training in one day a week at the weekend, in which case I then need to start about making sure I'm fueling properly between those workouts and during those workouts so I can get the best out of those workouts. You know, what are the threats to my, uh, to my training and, and consistency of training? So do I work 
do I work shifts? Do I, uh, you know, do I have poor sleep patterns? Um, do I work long hours? And do I have a very sort of cognitively demanding job, in which case doing any sort of really hard intervals during the week just as a coach just becomes just not good decision making. You know, if you have somebody that's just, you know, a chief executive of a company working a 16 hour day, making really tough decisions, and then you say, okay, this evening I want at nine o'clock at night, I want you to get on your bike and do you know, two by 12 minutes at sort of 90% of threshold. It's, it's not going to happen. Um, and there's ways around that and both from a planning perspective and also from a putting the responsibility back on the athlete and say, okay, well, the goal for this workout is we need you to do a certain amount of work at this intensity and you're allowed a certain amount of rest. So you decide how you want to slice that up, but ultimately you need to come away from that workout having a certain amount of quality at a certain intensity, whether that's effort-based, power-based, heart rate-based, or a mixture. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good good uh, description of how, how you can get started on, on that journey. And that was actually one of my questions that I have noted down about what self-coach listeners uh, can do if they want to take their first steps in, in this direction of training and being more particular, shall we say, and, and take these quantitative uh, uh, outputs and inputs into, into accounts. Is there... How how should they then? But let, let's make it even more specific. What uh, you mentioned the SWOT analysis is that a good place to start for the self coached age grouper? Um, I mean, just in terms of how they would go about that. Yeah, just just in terms of how to start planning their training and and then executing that training and being more particular and and having that that quantitativeness to their training. Yeah, I think I, I mean the run is a the run is a good example. Um, where it's very easy to to really start to get a sense of being a, a bit wiser with the intensity that you're training at. You, you know, if you if you've done a couple of running events um, in the past, or even if you've only done one, and you've just done a five k and you started getting into triathlon, then you can very easily find on the internet um, Jack Daniels uh, what they call V dot tables. Um, super easy to find. And on that, you can look up um, what your V dot score is, and then from that, it will tell you, you know, this is your endurance pace, and this is your threshold pace, and this is your interval pace, and that's a good starting point. And you don't need to necessarily get more uh, accurate than, than than using something such as that. Um, on the bike, um, you know, if people don't have a power meter or they they don't even own a heart rate monitor, um, even simplistically, you can find uh, a nearby climb that's uh, a steady incline that's going to take somewhere between four and eight minutes. And you know, on a on a reasonably benign day from a weather perspective, um, just ride up it as hard as you can. Um, and, and that's a very gross, simplistic mechanism of laying down a benchmark of, you know, is my fitness improving? And at completely the other end of the spectrum, you know, you have um, lactate testing, critical power testing, where you're doing, you know, multiple measures, you know, in a lab or with a power meter on your bike. 
and then going away and, and calculating you know, a very accurate threshold. Yeah, and I think you mentioned the VDOT calculator, which uh, is uh, great. And for the bike, if, you, if the listener don't have power meters and heart rate monitors, there's a good article on Training Peaks where Andy Coggan, I believe, has overlaid his uh, power zones with RPE, very descriptive RPE zones, so the listeners can use use those, and I'll try to find it and link it up. And also, I think Matt Fitzgerald has a great calculator, which also has swim, which I think is the critical swim speed that you mentioned. Yeah, the criti- I mean, the critical swim speed is easy. I mean, that's an easy yeah. one. Um, I mean, there's various articles on the internet. There's the actual original uh, work by Wakayoshi, where you take a 450 time and um, you just subtract you subtract the 50 time from the 400 time and then divide it by uh, 350 and that gives you your critical pace. Um, the other way is uh, the more recent terminology of critical swim speed um, by uh, which is a term used by by Paul Newsom at, at swim smooth. Um, and, and again, that's fairly easy to calculate because you do a 400 and a 200 and you subtract the 200 from the 400 and you divide by two. And, and, uh, that gives you your, uh, critical pace. Now that the swim's an interesting one in a sense that I think you have to be a little bit wary of, um, getting too wrapped up in, uh, training it in the same way that you would train the bike and the run, because I, I fundamentally, do not think that that's the best way to get the best out of your swim. Um, yes, there is a, a certain demand to swim regularly and to get some distance in, but the reality is um, that you're just never going to swim enough as a triathlete to really be uh, driving the aerobic pathways in the same way that a swimmer would be um, because you just don't have the time available. So then you really want to start to understand um what's the best way for me to improve my swim based on um, improving my technique, but improving my technique under load. So, you know, not just doing drills, but actually, you know, working on acquiring a better sense of the skill that you have in the water, whether that's using toys or um, getting feedback from a coach, whether that's, you know, visual or, or oral, uh, um, that can help you start to understand what you need to do to sort of better express the fitness that you have in the water. Yeah, definitely. I think that just getting 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 to a coach swim session once a month or so and, and getting that feedback and then and then trying to really be present in your in your sessions and uh underload as you say, apply that technique and really really think about what you're doing that that will bring you a long way to both bring up the fitness and the technique at the same time you don't need to choose between one or the other no you you can't separate the two i mean the you know a really good example of um where you can't really separate the two and and understanding what's actually going on within the body is uh, personally I, i really dislike unless there's a very specific reason you know the persistent use of paddles by triathletes and the reason is is that most triathletes have a terrible feel for the water anyway. And add into that, when you race in a triathlon, when you're swimming on other people's feet, you're, you're actually, your catch is really, you're catching dirty water that's already aerated. 
So it's even, it's even harder to get a good catch, a good feel for the water. So if you put something on your hand that doesn't actually allow you to have a good feel for the water and it means your arm moves slower through the water at a, at a slower contractile rate than you would typically swim at, then that to me seems completely counterproductive to what you actually need to achieve in swimming. Now, you know, there are certain very specific scenarios where you might use it as a tool, but it's a tool in the same way that, you know, a, a flathead screwdriver is a tool or a Phillips head uh, is a tool. You know, it's not something, it's not a crutch. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting point that you make and, and makes makes a lot of sense now that you now that you put it that way, definitely. And uh, yes, you're right. You see triathletes, or you can almost recognize the triathletes in the pool just by do they have paddles on and, and the pool boy between their legs all the time or not. And I think that, bring, that brings kind of in, uh, you know, you asked me earlier really sort of about, you know, sort of coaching style. Um, and I think that kind of points an interesting one to bring it back full circle and um really you know if you ask me to summarize you know the the way that i coach it's really this question of why you know i'm i'm not arrogant enough to sit here and say that we shouldn't learn from history um but really sort of true success and true learning and progression comes from constantly asking you know why is this you know exercise or movement or thought process relevant you know why am i doing it in relation to my goals in relation to the course in relation to my physiology why does it work you know as a coach you need i think it's important to understand you know why does this um intervention work or why doesn't it work um so it's constantly asking that why question um you know triathlon is an aerobic sport the majority of what people should be doing is aerobic um And the more you can ask that question of relevancy or specificity, the, the better your, I guess, the the more effective the the training that you do is going to be. Yeah, and I, I think that that's a very good point. And really trying to challenge yourself all the time, both whether it's as a coach or as a self-coach athlete, not not necessarily once you've made a decision and a plan, then don't try to start second guessing it all the time and and change things around but 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 being a bit challenging to yourself and to your decisions in the planning process and and at certain strategic points can be a really good thing and and at, at trying to find ways that you may do things better than you have been doing so that brings up another question obviously there are a lot of very large individual uh variances here but uh but you mentioned there asking why and knowing why so Have you found any common whys in uh, your coaching of age groupers specifically? Any commonalities in that apply to most of them that that age groupers listening to this can take away and apply to their own training? Yeah, I think there's there's the commonalities that I've seen between uh, age group athletes and uh, the professional athletes that I've worked with. I think the biggest quality that I see um, in terms of successful outcomes is uh, being very uh, very intrinsically motivated um the 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 best athletes that i've worked with and there's a clear pattern because i do actually you know when i start working with people i do sort of do a questionnaire which looks at um intrinsic and extrinsic motivations and there's a clear pattern and relationship between the ones 
that are heavily intrinsically motivated for the the sense of achievement, um, the sense of getting the best that they physically want to get out of their body, um, are are the ones that I see the most success with. You combine that with a very um, open and honest level of communication about um, how the training is going, how it felt, but also broader picture, um, trying to avoid compartmentalizing life. Um, and, and this is probably the, the the one mistake that I see many self-coached athletes make is they try to compartmentalize their, their, you know, their work and their family and their training. And the reality is, is that there's always washover in terms of stresses or pressures across all of those. And so to sit there and, you know, have a really stressful job, come home and go, right, I now need to do a really intense session, goes back to my point about understanding cognitive load. Um, you need as a, as a coach and, and as a self-coached athlete, you need to be able to step back a little bit and say, okay, well, uh, you know, how does everything interrelate? Do I really have, you know, the mental and the physical energy to do what I need to do today? Or do I need to, you know, adapt accordingly uh, because my time is limited or I can't get to the swimming pool or, um, you know, I just, I don't have just the sort of the, the, the mental sort of the mental bandwidth to, to do that really hard workout tonight, but I know that I can do it tomorrow. Um, and it's just making those judgment calls, um, and, and trying to remain objective about the broader, longer picture of, well, you know, in three months time, this is my A race. I'm, I'm going to go and finish that Olympic distance triathlon. So really, you know, adapting today is not, is not a deal breaker, you know, but am I trending in the right direction? Does that make sense? It does. And uh, I want to follow up on that. Where do you draw the line, whether you have it in you to do that hard session tonight or if you should skip it? Let's say it's a swim workout, for example. How many, if you know that you can do a hard set at not quite your your maximum potential, but maybe just two seconds per 100 meters slower or two or three seconds slower, is that enough of a of a decrease in performance that you should maybe skip it altogether and try to do it perfectly the next day if you have more time uh, from a bike and a run perspective um i would always encourage athletes to sort of go with a uh, a 20 minute rule of you know start the workout and sort of give it 20 minutes and and really see how you feel um after 20 minutes and, and you may well find that actually you know the the intensity of the workout becomes almost meditative and, and cathartic. So I know that sounds maybe kind of slightly masochistic, but but actually the reality is with a lot of elite athletes that they do when they're doing really hard, so for example, VO2 work, that they do almost go into sort of like a sort of a meditative state. Um, and so I would encourage people on the bike and the run to particularly give it 20 minutes and even in the swim. And that's, I don't, I'm not making, uh, I haven't necessarily made that up. That just comes from experience of working with many sort of elite athletes that say, you know, sometimes they're just carrying a lot of fatigue and, you know, they just, they're not feeling it. And then they get in the water or they go for a run and they give it a little bit of time. And it, and it you know, really it's about the 20 minute mark where things start to kind of kick in. Um, on the swim, um, I'd still say 20 minutes, but um I'd encourage people if you have a workout where 
you know, you're just struggling to hit your times to, to again, to look at the workout and say, okay, well, what am I actually trying to achieve here? You know, if I'm doing 10 hundreds quite hard um, and I'm just not hitting my times, you know, maybe I break that up into sets of 50s and I give myself enough rest that I can cognitively reset so that I can hold my stroke together. Because the reality is, is that what you constantly are chasing after in the swim is being able to focus on holding your technique together under load for the longest period of time. And, you know, if you look at the uh, uh, Daniel Coyle's um, talent code, there's a piece in there about learning and he talks about sort of neurological learning and very simplistically it breaks down to you need to do something well for a short period of time and then you need to do it well for a short period of time, you know, at high speed and then you need to do it well for a short period of time at high speed with more power and then you can do it well for a long period of time and then long period of time at high speed and then long period of time at high speed with more power and the reality is is that many triathletes kind of leap in sort of two-thirds of the way down that process of learning and go i'm just going to jump in and do some hard 400s and you know your stroke falls apart um you know 100 meters into that 400 what you'd be better served doing is doing a bunch of 50s off a very short turnaround that's just enough recovery to allow you to mentally reset. That's a great answer, really great. And and I want to piggyback on that 20-minute rule. I think that you probably meant that in- includes at least part of the intense part of the workout as well. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, because I think that I'm definitely not the only one that feels that more often than not, the first interval of a, of a VO2 workout, for example, is, is almost always the, hard, the hardest one. So uh, just going into a little bit of a discussion on bike training, because that's uh, one of your fortes with you also coaching road cyclists and uh, and mountain biking, uh, I believe. Do you have any overarching principles when it comes to, to bike training for, for your triathletes that you, that you coach? Um, a, a couple of aspects in there. I think it's understanding the demands of the racing. So, um, you know, for... You have to you have to sort of bear with me if I talk more in the context of, say, uh, an Ironman or a half Ironman. Um, but I think it's important to pay attention to the little details of you know, where is this course. You know, if if I live in if I live in Florida, for argument's sake, and it's pancake flat, and I decide I want to go and do Ironman Nice, which has a gigantic mountain in it with a technical descent, then. I need to really try and work out and understand how I prepare for that from, you know, a muscle recruitment perspective. Um, and that may mean that you need to do a certain style of sort of strength based intervals, um, that maybe joining a local cycling club and doing some criterium racing is beneficial if they have a road bike as well as a triathlon bike. So it, it's, uh, looking at it very specifically and saying, what are the demands? And the same with the mountain bikers and the cyclists is, you know, I've drilled down to, you know, what are we actually talking about from a, from a torque perspective for the mountain biker um, or for the road racer? You know, are they a, a ruler? Are they a, a climber? So a ruler is more somebody that is suited to kind of like a rolling course, a, a super domestic, somebody that, you know, has a, a good decent sprints on them but isn't an out and out pure sprinter or are they sort of more of a um 
an overall sort of GC contender and, you know, they're a climber. And then what are the demands of that uh, for them at the key races that they want to race at? Um, and building a program around that, understanding from a neurological perspective, you know, actually how do you improve um, efficiency? The, one of the comments I make regularly with the elite athletes that I work with um, in relation to the swim is it's not their ability to swim fast is really not particularly limited by the size of their engine. You know, you're dealing with folks who are the very pointy end physiologically speaking it's their capacity to express that as efficiently as possible and so it goes back to this focusing on skill awareness skill acquisition and just constantly cycling through that under load um and the same with the cyclist you know is there a particular demand for um, overcoming anxiety around technical descending. You know, how do we address that? Do they have an issue with riding at really high speeds? Um, do they need to do certain strength and conditioning work to cope with being really stable on the mountain bike whilst the bike is moving around underneath them? Um, you know, I maybe going a little bit off on a tangent, but I always find it interesting when I hear triathlon coaches you know say yeah you know you don't need to do any strength and conditioning work you know it's a way you know it's a waste of time um and then if you actually look at world-class athletes across multiple sports you know they are constantly doing some form of conditioning work because the reality is you you need a stable base to express power from and you know whether that's swimming biking or running you need a stable trunk to express all of that cylinders in the engine that you know a really talented athlete has and so you you need to be fitting some conditioning work in that's uh, yeah i totally agree that that's a whole different podcast that we could talk for a yeah, long time about yeah, that but indeed i definitely agree and, and that's something that uh, so many triathletes and we are all busy of course and uh, and not everybody trains for 20 15 even 10 hours per week a lot of most athletes probably train in the five to seven hours per week range or so 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 it it may seem counterintuitive to take away from that swim bike and run time but but you can uh, all, you know, that's the thing you can always do five minutes of a routine you know in front of the in front of the tv you know five to ten minutes of a of a routine in front of the tv of an evening um you know if you're really that committed to what you're wanting to achieve. Um, there's always the opportunity to to fit it in. And you make a valid point around the time available to train. You know, maybe some of the things that I'm saying, people are going, well, you know, I'm not, you know, Lionel Sanders. I'm not Leslie Smith. Um, you know, I'm not training lots of hours. I'm training, you know, sort of six, seven hours a week. Um, and the point I'd make there is then – you know, try to be super consistent with the training that you do. You know, if there's no sense in looking at a training plan that has any sort of periodization in it of, you know, three weeks of build and one week of recovery, um, when, you know, you've just told me as a coach, you can only train seven hours a week. So if you can only train seven hours a week, why would I give you five and then six and then 10 and then back to five? Because you'd spend three quarters of the month fed up, you're not training enough, and one week of the month fed up that you can't fill the training. In. You know, just find that consistent 
balance, keep it enjoyable and keep it varied and and in the main stay away from that middle ground because that's the other thing that a lot of athletes make the mistake of is just doing way too much sort of upper tempo threshold low threshold work and that's super expensive you know you can get into the mathematics of why but it's super expensive to recover from um and there's a reason why when you look at steven sealer's work of world-class um, cross-country skiers and rowers that there's this clear evidence of polarized training because in the main it's easier to recover from much higher in- intensity intervals than it is that middle ground now there's a time and a place for that middle ground but it isn't you know 10 of the 12 months of the year yeah the i guess that would come back to the specificity kind of thing depending on what race you, you race for yes okay so we're quickly running out of time you're doing a great job by the way answering a lot of my questions without me even even having to ask them with uh, with a lot of mistakes that you see and so on so so that, that's great uh just one more thing about the bike training uh so let's put two specific examples here so first the more of beginner triathlete but has done a few a couple of races and and do a few sprints and, and olympics and train let's say six seven hours per week so maybe two two rides per week how how would they train just very generally i think the first um i think the first training session they should do should be predominantly um aerobically orientated so like an endurance ride but within that endurance ride i'd encourage them to to really work a variety of different cadences um you know that this is a whole other separate debate about you know uh low cadence riding and um not to get into a, a huge debate about it but i just i don't agree with this idea that you need to noodle around at sort of 50 60 rpm all the time again there's context you know it, it's a it's a training tool it has its place but if you're trying to improve the body's ability to it, it express fitness then you want to learn for your body to operate at different muscle contractile rates so you know riding rolling terrain and and riding at different cadences and keeping the uh, the intensity predominantly aerobic um what is that when i say aerobic um somewhere between sort of you know f- sort of three and a half and five out of ten um then that would be a good starting point. And the second uh, the second session would be maybe where you might do some very short, hard intervals, um, somewhere between maybe eight and 16 minutes of total work. And you would slice that up um, on a two-to-one you know, ratio. So if you're doing you know, eight minutes of work, you get four minutes of recovery. Um, and you can then slice that up as you like um fantastic there's a there's a great template and and of course uh uh we know that that uh well you you've said it many times already that it depends on the athlete and the goal and so on and so forth but but knowing my my listeners a lot uh, for a lot of them like even this is going to be a lot better than than just shooting in the dark and not really knowing so so there is a time and a place for templates because not everybody is ready to to invest in a coach so so thank you for that and on the other end of the spectrum what uh, would you do for somebody like lionel sanders uh, a pro and one of the best at it by the way in ironman racing well what how would they train like on the bike um 
there's obviously there's obviously more sessions and um, the numbers are larger, but the principles are the same. Um, you know, we're trying to ensure that there is a resilience against neuromuscular fatigue and there is um, you know a high level of fitness. You know, in December um, last year, when Lionel and I sat down face to face and and said, okay, where do we need to be um, by about this time next year? You know, we laid out a sort of path of progression and um, a bit like a coloring in book, you know, I sort of put the picture there and then it was Lionel's job to go away and color it in, you know, based on, you know, what he understands of his body um, and, you know, what I know from... Uh, from both sort of science and you know, e- evidence in the field of this is what you need to do to you know raise your VO2 or raise your threshold um, and do it in a way that you can recover from it you know uh, as effectively as possible. Um, so that idea of slicing up certain work, you know, I'm, I, I haven't made that up, but there's um, a piece of work by Stephen Seeler around uh, interval training. Um, who's a and, and it's readily available on the internet and he's written a follow-up piece just this week about quality of work and work rest ratios and he uh, working with really good athletes he talks about you know four by four minutes or four by eight or four by sort of 12 to 16 minutes of work at you know decreasing levels of intensity that are still very high and for triathletes, I looked at that and I said, well, this is great, you know, but for triathletes with three sports, you know, there's an increased cognitive demand. So I said, okay, well, with these workouts, we know what we're trying to achieve. We know what the work-rest ratio should be. But if you put it on the athlete and say, look, if you're feeling great today, go do four by four minutes with two minutes recovery. But if you're not feeling great today and you know, you still know you need to do 16 minutes of work, then slice it up differently. Now, if you feel like a rock star, you might do that first interval as sort of six, seven minutes, and then the rest will be sort of three minutes, two minutes, and one minute. Um, And that seems to have worked really well, whether it's, you know, Lionel or whether it's an an age group athlete, but just putting that autonomy on them to make a, a smart decision around just how cognitively demanding they make the workout um, has allowed you know Lionel and other athletes to just get the best out of the workout. So principles are the same. It's just you know the numbers are obviously larger, which anybody that's seen his Strava would uh, agree. Yeah, I'll try to link to that that Strava profile in in the show notes as well. And and yes, thank you again. That was a very good breakdown. And I think if there's one thing, if there's only one thing that uh, that you should remember from this interview, then it, probably this about being flexible and. Uh, maybe you're not feeling that great but you can try to slice it up a bit and and if it's not your day at all then maybe skip that workout and do it another day but but trying to be flexible and keeping the main principles of what you're trying to achieve in mind all the time so this has been hugely hugely beneficial i think so let's just quickly roll into three rapid fire questions starting with what's your favorite book blog or resource related to triathlon um, it's actually not related to triathlon, but it is related to coaching. And, um, you know, at the moment I'm reading a book called Conscious Coaching by Brett Bartholomew. Um, oh, you're kidding me. I'm, I'm a, reading that as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
you know, Brett, Brett's a superb guy, great book. And there's a whole bunch of other sort of similar books, but, in, but that's, uh, I'm enjoying that at the moment. Um, and, and favorite, um, piece of gear or equipment you asked me. I mean, that, that's an interesting one. I guess it comes back to, you know, my, if you're not measuring, you're not managing, but the reality is I don't have a particular favorite, um, piece of equipment i uh, i certainly think that you know if you're doing some one-to-one work as a coach and you're looking at people swimming that you know a, a gopro is uh an almost a prerequisite because as whilst you can see things with the human eye you know sometimes the ability to go back and review and even for an age grouper that doesn't have you know that kind of resource you know, many phones nowadays are somewhat waterproof you know getting just even a brief clip of what you're doing under the water to to understand the difference between what you think you're doing and what's actually happening and it can be key um so it'd probably be a camera <laughs> would be great the uh the most valid piece of uh, equipment um and then i think the last question you asked me um I, I, I didn't ask it yet, but I have sent it to you. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, you sent it to me. Yeah, so I'm just kind of like uh, wanting to make sure I get those get those answered for you. Um, you said, you know, what's a what's a personal habit that that's helped uh, help me achieve success? I, I think it goes back to learning, um, just constantly learning, and you know, trying to uh, make better and better informed decisions. Um, uh, you know, a, a wise manager once said to me, "If you think you know it all, then quit your job because you don't." Um, yeah, perfect. simple as that. Perfect, perfect. Okay, David, this has been absolutely great. I learned a ton, and uh, I think that the listeners will too. Thank you again for coming on the show. Where can the listeners find out more about you and connect with you? Um, there's there's a little bit of uh, I you know my website is not sort of full of blogs and, and all sorts of things but i'm on uh, i'm on twitter as um coach tilbers and uh my website's tilburydavis.com um and uh, and i'm on instagram as as well right thank you so much this has been david tilbury davis thank you again david for coming on the show thanks michael I just have one follow-up item before signing out for today, and that is uh, the paper by Steven Seiler that we mentioned in the interview, which is on the topic of what is the most demanding high-intensity interval session. And uh, I'll link to this paper in the show notes so that if you're interested in the, in, interested in the details, you can go there and have a look, thattriathlonshow.com. But just some key points here to make from the paper if you, you're in a hurry and you want the, the cliff notes. How demanding a session is perceived as depends on the work intensity, accumulated work duration, and the work-to-rest ratio, as well as the acute intensity. And a fascinating Swedish study from way back in the 60s came to the conclusion that uh, if you perform a workout at a power or pace that uh, would take you to exhaustion within 10 minutes or so when performed as a time trial, but you break that work up into work to rest blocks with a constant one-to-one ratio, but different durations. So for example, one minute work, one minute rest, or two minutes work, two minutes rest, and so on 
you will identify a breaking point that uh, happens between that one minute and two minute work durations where a one minute sustaining that one to one work duration or one minute work one minute rest is uh, it's uh, sustainable for for a whole hour so that's uh, that's pretty amazing but when you increase the duration of work bouts and increase the rest durations to two minutes even though the same work rest ratio and the same accumulated work is uh, in place it becomes increasingly hard almost exponentially harder to to sustain that and you see the physiological responses as well uh, of that harder effort and another interesting piece from this paper is uh, a reference to one of Seiler's own studies with physiological and uh, perceived effort data on over 1400 individual uh, high intensity interval training sessions performed by 63 subjects over 12 weeks. These sessions were always one of three prescriptions, four by four minutes, four by eight minutes, or four by 16 minutes prescribed as maximum maximal session effort workouts. And uh, the data showed that by far, by a landslide, the hardest perceived workouts were the ones with the four by four minute work durations. And uh, they had, for example, the percent of sessions with a session RPE of nine to 10 on that session RPE scale, which goes to 10 as maximum, was 32% for the four by four minute session and only 7.8% for the four by eight minute session and 5.3% for the four by 16 minute session. But Seiler makes uh, a good point on uh, that data leading them to conclude that effort and exertion are different constructs and acute exertion seems to be strongly driven by acute work intensity, whereas effort can be seen as the integral of exertion and time. And I'll leave it at that and uh, not talk any more about this. But again, go to the show notes in that on thatrashflonshow.com and you can find that and uh, all the things that we talked about with David as well. The next episode will come out this Thursday as usual. We will have Gail Bernhardt, an Olympic coach, and with her, but she's also... Um, coached a lot and a lot and a lot of age groupers and we'll talk triathlon training for beginners as i promised a couple of episodes ago we'll have uh, more content for beginners as well going forward and gail is an expert in that field so that will be exciting please send me feedback and questions and topic and guest requests to michael at scientific triathlon.com that's michael with a k or tweet me my handle is at SciTriat. That's it for today's episode. See you on Thursday. And in the meantime, keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>